The scripture says in Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The plans and plots of the nations are inconsequential compared to the plans and power of God. His plan triumphs every time and in his sovereignty. Mysteriously, he rules over all of the nations. Now this, in particular, might difficult, be difficult for us to grasp as we think about our world now and throughout history. Consider the wars that have raged throughout history, and, and yet we would say and confess God is sovereign over these things, working these things for his plan. Consider, brothers and sisters, our own nation which is plagued with death, particularly in the form of abortion, in little ones who are slain in their mother's wombs. And yet we would confess that God in His sovereignly, mysteriously overrules even these decisions for His glory and for the good of His people, for the redemption of His people. And to that we would humbly and soberly say, yes, he is sovereign, even over these horrible murders which are taking place. We, we don't know how it all makes sense, and yet we would humbly confess that this is the truth. And our text today helps us make sense of this. But we see here the most evil plot in all of human history the planning of the murder of the Son of God Himself. The plan of the murder of God in human flesh. And God uses it mysteriously and sovereignly for the redemption of His people and for His own glory. And if He does this with the most evil of all plots in history... Will he not work all things for his own glory and for the good of his people? We have that assurance that not only in these international horrors that we see, but we can even apply that to our own lives and the particular situations and trials in which we find ourselves. That if God is in control of these larger evils, he is in control of our lives. 
And he's not only able to work these things for his glory and our good, he is somehow mysteriously designing them for our redemption, brothers and sisters. While God's enemies plot against him, he mysteriously and sovereignly uses their own plans to fulfill his plan for the redemption of his people. I want to remind you quickly of where we are in the book of John. After the prologue, Jesus makes some audacious claims that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah who has come in fulfillment of all that the prophets said, of all that the law said, that he is the one Israel had been waiting for. But he doesn't just claim these things, he backs them up. He gives some evidence by miraculous and amazing signs. That's why many have called the first 12 chapters of John the book of signs. You see the word pop up over and over and over again. Jesus uh, turns water into wine at the wedding at Cana. He heals the sick. He gives sight to the blind. And here in John chapter 11, he raises someone from the dead. Is he not the Messiah? Is he not the Son of God? How could you believe otherwise? And in chapters 11 and 12, we have a transition from the book of signs to what some have called the book of glory, where Jesus, after this sign of raising Lazarus from the dead, begins his trek to being lifted up on the cross. And this is where we will see the glory of God in a particularly beautiful and glorious way. As the Son of God is lifted up, and glorified as he dies on the cross, as he is lifted up in resurrection, as he is lifted up in ascension and glorified. We see that transition taking place in this text right before our eyes. He raises Lazarus from the dead, and it leads directly to this plot to kill Jesus Christ, our Savior. And that's what this passage is about. It's about the plot to kill Jesus, it's about the, the authorities, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees who plan the death, who plan to murder Jesus Christ. And so I want us to, as we walk through this passage, to consider this plot to kill Jesus, particularly its irrationality, its intentionality, and its irony. Consider in verses 45 to 47, its irrationality. Many of the Jews... Therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. What happens at the raising of Lazarus? Some of the Jews who were with them believe in Jesus. And we don't know the details or the depth of that belief. We've seen throughout John that sometimes it is said that someone believes in him and yet they're not placing their trust in him. They, they haven't actually trust in Jesus. They rather believe the facts of what they see. We're not too sure about the details of that. But that would be the natural thing to do, would it not? If you see someone speak someone's name who is dead, and they come out of the grave, the perfectly reasonable thing to do would be to believe in that person. It's what every one of us should do if we see that. Believe in him. He just raised someone from the dead. And yet, what do others do? Some believe, and yet others 
go off and tattle to the Pharisees. It's not explicitly said that they don't believe, believe here, that they're unbelief. And yet I, I think it's clear that there's a contrast here between those who believe and those who run to the Pharisees to report what Jesus had done. And that is utterly irrational. <laughs> to see the raising of someone from death to life and to not believe. I, I would submit to you, every time we lack faith in Jesus Christ, every time we sin against God in unbelief, we are being completely irrational. We are being blinded by sin. Instead, these Jews who go to the Pharisees and the Pharisees themselves should have responded by believing in Jesus. They, they should have not only trusted in Him, they should have bowed down and worshipped Him and said, you are what we've been waiting for all this time. They should have worshipped Jesus because of what He did. It's their unbelief, their sin was utterly irrational. And yet, hopefully I don't undermine my point here, there was a bit of rationality to it in their own minds. Because faith in Jesus Christ, as we've said repeatedly through this, this book, is not simply a matter of the evidence that is there before you. It's not simply that you see the evidence and there's enough evidence and you put your trust in Him. There's more to the story. There's morality to the story. There's, there's your own uh, self determination there's there's what you will lose as a result of worshiping and trusting in Jesus Christ and the Jewish leaders the Pharisees knew they had a lot to lose they knew that to worship Jesus would mean relinquishing their own grasp on their lives they knew it would mean giving up life as they knew it I remember meeting years ago a man by the name of Emmanuel Kizon, uh, a man who was from the Philippines. And he grew up Catholic, was a part of a, an intensely, in, intensely religious Catholic family in the Philippines. And one day, through reading the scripture and through someone preaching the gospel, he decided he could no longer abide by a works-based salvation. He knew that if it was up to him, he would be dead in his sins and transgressions. And he cast himself upon Jesus Christ to save him. And do you know what happened as a result? His father beat him with rods and shunned him from the family. He knew this was going to happen. It was revolutionary for him. He counted the cost. He knew he would have to relinquish his whole way of life. That everything about his life would change radically. And yet, what else could he do? He knew Jesus was the Savior. And so he clung in faith to Jesus Christ. And I would say to you, every conversion is as revolutionary. The unbelievers you speak to on a regular basis, it's not simply a matter of the evidence but somewhere they will have to acknowledge if they worship Jesus Christ, their whole life will change, will be turned upside down. It will be revolutionary for them. Maybe some of you here today accept the facts of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. 
You like believe intellectually everything that the Bible says. And yet, you know that if you are to cling in faith to Jesus Christ, your life will have to change. It won't be able to stay the same. You will have to relinquish the grip you have on your life and give it over to Jesus Christ. And so far, you've not been willing to do that. But don't you see how irrational that is? It's unbelievably irrational. Brothers and sisters, think about your own conversion. It was no less revolutionary when you had to bow your knee before the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I am giving up control over my life. Now it's yours. You are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. It belongs to you. And yet you also feel yourself day in and day out wanting to to grab back some of that control, wanting to do things your way. There's some aspect of your life, some sin that you hold on to, and it is utterly irrational. Brothers and sisters, let us once again turn to Christ in repentance and faith, acknowledging Him as the Son of God and submitting once again to His Lordship. We see their response. Some of the Jews and the Pharisees is completely irrational. This plot to kill Jesus, completely irrational. And yet we see there's an intentionality to it in verses 48 through 50. Now this is closely related to this previous point, and yet there's a slight distinction in that we we see in particular a couple of the things they are unwilling to give up we see that this is not just a a random mob that is killing Jesus, but an official plan and determination to kill Jesus for specific reasons. There are specific things the Jewish leaders want to preserve and keep safe. They have a dilemma. He does these amazing signs, an irrational dilemma. He does, they, they see the legitimacy of the signs that Jesus is doing, and yet they say, we can't let him keep going on like this. Well, why not? Because then everybody will believe in him. Yeah, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? We can't let him keep going on like this because everyone will believe in him. And yet what they're ultimately concerned about is the Roman authorities cracking down because of this this leader which is raising up a following for himself. They're concerned about drawing the attention of the Roman government and stamping out everything that they had built up, everything that they had gained. In particular, look at what they say. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. They're afraid that the Romans will take away their place and their nation. In John chapter 4, verse 20, Jesus has a conversation with the Samaritan woman and she mentions the place 
where the Jews worship in contrast from where the Samaritans worship. The place where the Jews worship is Jerusalem and the temple in particular. This holy place, the center of God's work. We see the temple referred to as a particular place also in Acts 21, 28. I would argue that the place which the Jewish leaders are concerned to preserve and save is none other than the temple itself, the center of God's action and presence as they considered it. They want to preserve their nation, this particular ethnic people that had been raised up and even though it wasn't exactly like it was in the Old Testament in previous times, the Romans gave them a little bit of authority and gave them a place where they could be a people. And Caiaphas's words present to us an intentional strategy for saving those things which were most precious to the Pharisees. They wanted to preserve their power. They wanted to preserve their privilege. And I, I might would even argue they wanted to preserve their own ideas of how they could keep the promises of God intact. You remember what they prized above everything. They, they prized the law. They prized Moses. They prized this physical, particular place, the temple, where they said God's presence dwelt. They treasured the ethnic people of Israel. And they determined that this was, this was the fulfillment ultimately of God's plan, that we would have a temple, that we would have a nation, that these things were the fulfillment of God's promises and therefore they had to preserve them at all costs. They valued these things above all else and as a result, they rejected Jesus. In serious times, in frightening times, in threatening times, you do whatever you can to preserve that which is most valuable to you, that which you treasure most. If you had a fire in your home, you woke up in the middle of the night and everything was on fire, you'd go collect all your books, right? <laughs> you'd go collect your jewelry. You'd go collect your pots and your pans, your, your clothes. What would you go and preserve? You would go scoop up with all of your might and effort, your little ones, your, your loved ones, your spouse, your wife, your husband, your children, your, your pets perhaps, you would save that which was most precious to you at all costs. And here the Jewish leaders are grabbing hold of what is most precious to them and as a result they reject Jesus Christ. And we have to ask ourselves what we treasure most and in what ways that causes us to reject the truth of God. To reject what God has revealed to us. In what ways will you set aside the truth of God for those things which you value most? Isn't it ironic that the 
They were trying to preserve what they saw as valuable and the fulfillment of God's promises, and instead they rejected outright the true fulfillment of God's promises. And we have determined, brothers and sisters, that our highest treasure, our greatest treasure, is none other than Jesus Christ. And now we would somehow go back to these lesser treasures, these these lesser idols, these things that we think will satisfy us when they are nothing. They could perish in the fire and it would mean nothing to us because Christ is our treasure. And yet the Jewish leaders intentionally set aside the truth of God in Jesus Christ for their power, for their privilege, for what they saw as the promises of God to them. But we also finally see the the irony of their plot. It is ironic. The very thing they plan to do is the very means by which God redeems his people. Verses 51 to 57. The two key verses in this passage have to be verses 51 and 52. John's divinely inspired comments on the words that were just spoken by Caiaphas. John says in verse 51, He did not say this of his own accord. What did he not say of his own accord? That it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. John goes on, But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. It was an official determination that we are going to put Jesus to death. As a result, it's not quite Jesus' time yet, so he withdraws to a solitary place to keep his head down until the appropriate time but notice this prophecy which john speaks about notice there are two aspects to this prophecy one is the idea of substitution that jesus would die for the nation in place of the nation the idea is if jesus dies then the nation doesn't die jesus doesn't die then the nation will die and i take this, this idea of substitution in two ways. What does it mean that Jesus would die for the nation in particular? I think there's a temporary ful- a fulfillment in which the Jewish nation is, at least for a brief period of time, spared because of the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ. He dies in their place, in a sense. And yet there's another sense in which he dies for the nation of Israel, in which any and all who will bow their knee and come to faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. His sacrifice will count for them. Though they are a part of the nation throughout the Old Testament, which constantly rejected him and constantly refused him, yet if they will bow the knee in repentance and faith, they will be received by God Almighty. He is a substitute for all who come to him in faith. Notice the second part of this prophecy, and I hope I don't preach an entire 
other sermon on this particular passage because there's so much wealth of theology and richness here in the glory of Jesus Christ. We can't just bypass it. He would die to gather together God's children. He would die to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And first, notice the election of God's children. It's not that they simply would become His children, but that He is gathering His children. God is a heavenly Father who is gathering His children together. And this is not based upon their work or their merit. It is based upon the work of God. God. It is based upon the divine choosing of God before the foundation of the world. We could track this back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse uh, 17 and 18. No, excuse me. Uh, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Notice the election of these children. God is gathering a people for himself. And this, this in itself gives us a great confidence in evangelism, does it not? We don't have to make anyone a child of God. We don't have to say the right things so that Somehow their mind will click and then they'll become a child of God. God the Father is gathering His children. We go out and preach the good news of Jesus Christ who died. And through this proclamation, proclamation of the death of Jesus Christ, He is gathering His children. He's gathering them. He's gathering them. He's in, included us in this mission that we would go forth and help Him gather these children. Notice not only the election of these children, notice the diversity of these children. We can take this back to John chapter 10 and verse 16. Where Jesus says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jew and Gentile, slave free. All the people throughout all places, throughout all nations, God is gathering His children. It is a wonderfully diverse people. And He's doing it through the death of Jesus Christ. This is the means by which He is doing it. Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. But not only is it wonderfully diverse, it is wonderfully diverse united, to gather them into one people. It is a united family. These children are being united together. And what is the basis of their unity? It is the death of Jesus Christ. We are united together in Christ's death. This is a little bit contrary to the way we often think about our unity together in our church, in churches in general, right? We tend to think 
about things that we have in common with other people. Maybe hobbies that we have in common with other people. Maybe life stages that we have in common with one another. That that will be where our ultimate unity is. And it is easier that, I mean, it just naturally happens that way. But this, what is spoken of here, is a supernatural unity. It is not simply based on age or even language spoken or preferences or styles or hobbies. It is based in the death of Jesus Christ our Lord. That means, brothers and sisters, you have a greater, more substantial, more deep, deeper and fundamental unity with a Chinese brother in Christ who doesn't speak a bit of English, doesn't know a single song that you know, doesn't have a single hobby that they share with you in common. You are one with them in the death of Jesus Christ. And this is our unity, brothers and sisters. Sure, we will have other things that will unite us naturally, that will make it easy for us to communicate with one another. Maybe, maybe you've even thought among our fellowship that you don't know so-and-so very well because you all just don't have that much in common. And yet, I would contend, you have the death of Jesus Christ in common, and that is a richer, more glorious unity than anything else you could ever imagine. And what does that mean for our fellowship then? What does that mean for our unity together? That it's found in the death of Christ and that it will be enriched as we speak to one another, as we encourage one another, as we proclaim to one another the glorious riches of all that we have together in the death of Jesus Christ. Speak often of the death of Jesus Christ to one another. If you find yourself with someone else and you don't have a lot in common, speak about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, which washed away all of your sins and made you together with your brother or sister one in him. This is our unity. It is in Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. And all of this is in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. This is not just some odd new thing that Jesus is doing. This is in fulfillment of the scriptures which speak of God gathering his children together into one people. This is in fulfillment to something like Isaiah 49.6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Not just those in Israel, but all who come to faith in him. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation shall reach to the end of the earth. It is a fulfillment of the promise in Ezekiel 36 where the scripture tells us, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And he goes on, I will give you a spirit. I will put my spirit within you. I'll replace your heart so that you walk in my ways and you will be my people and I will be your God. This is glorious. Fulfillment of all of God's words from the first to the last, and it is all found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Pharisees were afraid to lose their 
place, their holy place. And what they didn't realize is that Jesus Christ was, is, and forever will be the holy place of God, where he makes his presence known, the fullness of God in bodily form. Pharisees were afraid to lose their nation. And what they failed to realize is that Jesus is the king over a new nation, over a new people who will be the people of God. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Brothers and sisters, we have a new unity. We have a new holy place. We have a new allegiance. And it is not in anything earthly, not anything in this nation or any other nation. All of these things are found in the person and work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.